0: Episode number 50, Teenage Depression, Bipolar, and Anxiety. As last episode, this one's going to be a little different. I hope you will listen to the end, and if you like what you hear, then leave a comment or a rating. Now this episode may seem a little disjointed, although I hope it really doesn't. But when you discuss teenage mental illness, as I will, disjointed is what you get. And I suppose in some ways it really represents what it's like living the experience. I truly hope that you will enjoy today's episode. Now, I don't know how many of you have been in an airplane overlooking a large city. From a certain distance, where cars are more like insects and trees like splotches of green paint, the roads appear so straight, buildings organized and traffic far more controlled and pleasant the whole from that perspective appears orderly appears defined even understandable you can watch traffic merging smoothly into one another the slowdowns seem reasonable and controlled neighborhoods appear tranquil and peaceful everything seems to have its place purpose and order Yet if you were to quickly drop into the center of one of those cities where you had never before visited, the roads probably wouldn't seem so straight, potholes would definitely appear, the traffic would feel more disorienting and chaotic, the neighborhoods and people feel more random and disjointed. I've often thought about the difference of perspective when I really think about teenage life, and more especially when I think about mental illness how orderly mental illness can feel from a distance, where there are symptoms, treatments, and perhaps medications, and yet how messy, disorderly, and disorienting it can feel when you are up close and personal in the middle of the chaos. Now, initially I had intended to separate each of these illnesses into their own podcast. I wanted to treat them like viewing different cities from the sky. Different cityscapes having differing roads, buildings, and neighborhoods like symptoms, treatments, and therapies, but very similar. But I have all too often in these podcasts, uh, given my understanding from that 30-foot-thousand elevation. Today, I wanted to explain it from the ground. Now, I know that they are differing illnesses with very unique symptoms, treatments, and their own set of problems, and they don't always come separately. Yet from the ground, in many ways, they are very similar. From a distance, they can be definable, even understandable, and in some ways present themselves orderly and distinct, like looking at the order of that city from above. But the closer you get to the individual, the more chaos that seems to evolve. Like a large city, you see, you start to see details, frustrations. What was once orderly traffic passing through the streets is now filled with noise, pedestrians, trash, graffiti, potholes, Faded traffic lines, cracked buildings, and pungent odors. And yet, even in that detail, there is beauty. Glass buildings, beautiful architecture, and people of all kinds and ages with differing smiles, perhaps frowns and beards and makeup, each walking the streets with their own agenda, but interwoven between each other without so much as bumping into one another. And then you look deeper, and there are the poor huddled along the edges, while men and women in expensive clothing walk to and from their offices. It is a world of contrast that changes from morning to evening and night to day. A city for me is a beautiful metaphor about mental illness, constantly changing but really staying very much the same. When you stand in the middle of the chaos, you are too close to the distractions to see the larger issues. The noise, the distractions, the passing people, the smells, the trash, the graffiti make it difficult to truly see and understand the whole picture. The patterns that were once very visible and easy to see from above now melt into the details, and you can't distinguish one from the other. I've been hesitant to write about teenage mental illness. One, because I still have difficulty separating the whole from the details of my own life. All I have are the details from the ground, and events from the perspective of one who was standing on the crowded sidewalk, and those around me who knew me well were obviously standing there with me with their own perspective of the exact same chaos. And two, when one is bombarded with so many details within the chaos, eventually all you have left in the memory are a few remembrances of faces, graffitis, smells, perhaps traffic accidents, And the trash but they are connected only by fact and that i was there there's no logic to them or even perspective but simply pictures and short flashback memories colored darkly by mental illness without perspective or identity now i know that might sound strange to someone who has never experienced mental illness but that is all i have just a few facts and a few mental pictures I'm sure that somewhere in my brain there exists a whole host of emotional memories, but they're locked away so deep that I have no way to recall them. From time to time, my wife, my family, my friends remember a humorous, problematic, or even regular moment in time when I did or said something, perhaps even stupid. I laugh, I make some comment about how crazy I was, but I have no memory of it. Oh, I pretend once in a while that I know what they're discussing assuming that if they remember it, it must have happened as they said it did. And I might even at times have some kind of small, faded, worn picture in my mind that I can barely recall. To be truthful, I really don't remember any of my childhood or teenage years except for a few moments' pictures. I do have many facts stored about in the hidden corners in my mind that light up once in a while. Strangely, I can recall names and places, people who I have not talked about for 20 years, but I have no memories of them, meaning I can't recall the event with all the connected emotional content. Even the facts at times are a bit strange in that I can remember some, and others are completely gone. So my life before about 35 years old is strangely blank. Now This doesn't mean that I don't remember my friends' names, pictures of many of their faces, and even some factual information about graduations and so forth. But the memories I made with them are really unavailable to me. Why tell you all of this? Because it's important to the understanding of one who deals with serious mental illness during their teenage years. I've already talked about symptoms during my podcasts many times, and you can even look them up on various websites. I've talked about treatments and what can be done to help. Teenage mental illness is similar in many ways to a young adult mental illness, except that the body and mind are probably more in a process of a fairly serious developmental phase. My intent today is to try to help those list who are listening and suffer to know that they're not alone, that there are many of us who understand, and for those who do not suffer, to attempt to understand mental illnesses in a unique way. I wanted to provide a window into the soul and into what happens to the soul and perhaps the body when mental illness strikes during those formative years. Now, as I I have already stated, my windows to my mind are pretty closed and shuttered, and it's pretty dark inside. Yet there is a crack from which to to view the past, but I think that maybe there's just enough light left in the room to provide some benefit. I like the analogy of the city. So often, I appeared so regular, defined, and normal from the distance. While inside, the details are more like the city, full of complexity and chaos. The problem I faced, and that everyone who suffers young, is that I could only see the city from the ground in the midst of the chaos. Our minds are built to attempt to define some order we want to be 30,000 feet, to seek some kind of pattern in the busy- busyness and stark differences passing by us. And one can only imagine how feeble this must feel to try to see something from 30,000 feet while you're standing on the ground. There are certain patterns I could see. The traffic does flow in certain directions. Similar faces continue to show up in regular places. Sun does rise, and it does set. There were patterns I could count on, and strangely, or maybe not so strangely, I gravitated to those rational things that made sense. Chemistry, mathematics, sciences were places where I could predict and know patterns and answers. Some people were similar to chemistry and math. They were predictable, definable, stable. I was not one of those people, but I gravitated to individuals where I could see the patterns and they became pillars for both me, for me, both in the church and out of it. I knew that I could rely on them even when I could not rely upon me, certainly my parents, my wife my family. A few spiritual leaders were my pillars, but they were few. People for the most part are creatures of habit and fairly predictable when faced with normal circumstances and events that are familiar. They are not predictable when faced with unpredictable circumstances. However, there are a few of those people that don't change their behavior to match the circumstances or the people around them. Those are the people I needed, because what I faced was anything but predictable and definable. My emotional state would change my personality in various ways from depressions to highs. I could be very talkative for a couple of weeks, and the next very quiet during others. I was emotional, which was probably not necessarily a good thing for a teenage young man living in a home with a southern father. So my unique behavior did not quite favor a wide group of friends. I needed stability from others as my own perspective and emotional state began to swing rapidly. I longed to be included, as most teenagers do, but because of my perspective of the world, internally, changed so quickly and so widely, it was difficult to be included in any group. I deeply desired to be different, not truly knowing how different I was from the normal teenager. Now, I watched others. I imitated what they did, not in an evil or bad way. What I didn't understand then and what I do now is that I needed that information and practice so that I could develop my skill for masking my illness in the outside world. It was during my teenage years that I developed this skill and honed it extremely well. I was very good at observation and imitation, but I had no real understanding of why people did the things they did and why I was imitating it. In other words, other individuals had emotional connection to the behaviors, and in some ways acted as they did based on at least their emotions and observations of the world around them. I couldn't use my emotions in that manner, in part because they didn't often match my environment and the events around me. To feel depressed at church meetings or activities, or without desire or even any emotion to attend a youth dance, or even feel... Anxious in moments when I should have been quite calm, for no real outside reason, caused me to disassociate my feelings with my actions. Well, as best as any teenager can. I was a teenager and still learning, so those emotions often got the best of me at the wrong times and places. I remember camping trips with the scouts where I should have been excited, motivated, and energetic at the opportunity to be out, and all I could feel was impending doom. That was not real, except for in my mind. I remember a feeling that I had to get away and go somewhere when I was an older teenager, so intense that I just drove away from home, not really having anywhere to go. I just left and drove. The feeling had nothing to do with my parents, the environment, or even reality. But the feeling felt as real and as intense as shattering a window with a baseball. I struggled to understand why I felt that way. I deeply struggled with the intense emotions that had no relevance to my circumstances. My environment, what I had been taught, or anything that I could connect with them. As one can imagine, relationships were a strange world for me. Relationships rely not just on some rational thought, but emotional presence. Development of relationships takes time, effort, consistency, and a measure of emotional control and development. I have since learned how powerful emotional connection is to any relationship, whether that be a friendship, a romantic interest, or even just acquaintances. When you cannot trust your feelings to be true, and you spend most of your time masking what you feel, then relationships devolve to rational things, common interests, conversation without meaning, trying to understand what someone else is feeling and thinking, but really unable to do so because you have no frame of reference. I had few friends, in the emotional sense, because I was emotionally unable to connect with anyone, and often my friendships were more one-sided, individuals who were stable and comfortable with who they were. I had one friend who always wondered why our relationship always felt so one-sided. Couldn't tell him why, and I didn't really understand why. As far as my romantic interests, they obviously never really developed until much later. I did feel emotional desires to connect with several young women, but could never understand them. Now, I know that that's not unusual for a teenager, but I suppose that I was far more a mystery to them. I couldn't connect in any form of emotional stability, and they probably couldn't understand why my personality changed like it did. Oh, I was the same on the outside as I was learning to mask my emotions, but young women have a good sense of emotional connection, even through the masking. It was also the fact that I spent so much time concerned with my emotions and masking that I had little time for any real connective conversation. I suppose that from the outside I appeared more disinterested than I really was simply because I spent so much effort on the mask and holding the emotions in check that I had no real time to understand what they were feeling and thinking. I probably appeared more as the science and math geek, although I really don't like that word, than someone who might enjoy a good date. The fact is I really don't know and don't remember much, except that relationships were nothing but frustration for me. All of my mental illness concerns crossed over into the spiritual realm as well. I wanted to be seen as spiritual, and that is easy enough if you learn the doctrine well enough. You can appear spiritual, intelligent, and motivated. Because of my dysfunctional emotional state and the wild swings of emotion, the gospel, for me, was more doctrinally driven. The gospel, when taken from the perspective of rational thought and explanation, actually makes a great deal of sense. Taking care of one another, welfare, individual effort, intelligent design, symbolic ordinances, sin, judgment, mercy, happiness, and joy, and almost every point of the gospel in its fullness speaks of really a rational thought and something that just makes sense when you place it into a society of diverse people. I took to the doctrinal side of the gospel easily and could produce more advanced doctrinal answers early on in my youth. I enjoyed the stories in the Book of Mormon, Bible, and church history. Even the Joseph Smith story makes sense when you consider the various reasons why an intelligent God would choose him over more learned scholars. The truth is is that the gospel makes rational sense, and for someone who could not trust his emotions, I enjoyed it. The difficulty I always faced was the other side of the gospel. I had a testimony of the doctrine, and that it made for wonderful societies, and that it made rational sense, but emotionally my testimony was barely a flickering flame. Yes, I had experienced some very personal and moving moments, as most do in in time, so that I did have some spiritual backing to my rational experience, but a true testimony requires that which I did not possess, an ability to recall those emotional moments. My emotional state wound through its various highs and lows, and there was little that I could do to control or stop it. I did not understand the problem I faced until much later, so much of the power of personal revelation was lost in a muddy river of fast moving emotion. Now I'm sure that what I'm sure it was there, but often overwhelmed by emotional instability. So I don't believe that I fully developed a true and deep testimony until much later in life when more healing and understanding came. For those deep revelatory moments that were my own, I would have to wait. And this caused me to rely deeply on others' experiences. Oh, I did want those experiences, and I would walk out into the woods nearly every Sunday outside my house to pray for them. But they never came, at least at that moment. I often needed help when it came to confirming what I thought the Lord had said or what was right. I had many emotional voices in my head, telling me various things at times, and then sometimes I didn't have any voices at all. But I could rarely sort them out myself. I needed others to help me and to confirm which voice I should or should not follow, and sometimes those voices were powerful. My wife can tell you more stories than I, but for a time I even believed that I could walk on as a place kicker on a college football team, Division One, without having having played or kicked a football, and that I could possibly even speak to famous people to convince them of the gospel, such as the life of one who suffers from bipolar depression and anxiety. I suppose that I could not fault anyone who experienced what I did as a teenager to walk away from the church. But I can also say from my perspective now, and those I know who did, that their lives turned out far worse than mine. The church and its doctrine, while difficult in many ways to mental illness, was still the only haven that I found where some things made sense, even if my emotional state did not. I struggled to attend at times simply because of the overwhelming feelings of doubt, depression, and darkness, and that they were too strong, and other times I couldn't go wait to go to church to discuss what I had learned doctrinally. I really couldn't imagine what my parents thought, and I actually had never asked them. In some ways, I don't think I really want to know. I like to leave my past in the past, as the memories I do have now of those experiences in my teenage life are rarely good ones. Some might say that I blocked my memories for just that reason. They are too difficult on my current consciousness to relive. Oh, I never did evil things. Somewhere in my personality, or perhaps my spirit, I was never disposed to the evil in the sense of sexuality, drugs, alcohol, and other commandments. Oh, I was not always kind to those around me because of my emotional state, and my father and I had a tussle for a time and even for many years. I'm sure that at times my father wanted me out, especially when it came close to my missionary service and I was struggling. I'm actually not sure how my parents were so merciful. Perhaps some intervention from above saved me from my parents and myself. I don't know why I feel that the Lord was so merciful to me when it seems like others like me suffered so much more than I. But I hope today that my limited memories coupled with some later in life understanding have provided you some insight into what it's like to be a teenager with mental illness. Maybe you have a son or a daughter that suffers as I, and perhaps there might now exist just a little more mercy for them. Maybe you suffer as I did and found some comfort that you are not alone. And that things can work out in the end. And that church is really the place to be. Maybe with just a small glimpse into what is a terrible illness, you can find a little more compassion. I hope whatever you might have found may make this terrible illness just a little bit more bearable. Now, as I always say, remember that the Lord requires the fight. And that he can then do his part. Until next time.